You know what? Fuck it. I'm going to put the um, the actual intro in after the fact because I don't want to waste any more time. Go ahead, Phil. I was just going to say, I don't think I've been on a podcast yet that didn't end up starting with Corey just saying, fuck it. And then actually... That's exactly what I was going <laughs> to say. So, Oh, really? Yeah. You're, yes. you're always like trying to perfect something and you're just like, fuck it. Let's do it live. Like that Bill O'Reilly clip. Fuck it. Great comparison. Let's do it. First of all, I have zero filter on what comes out of my mouth. Second of all, the guy's talking about my mom. Well, the hell is he doing? Our RS is in the jackpot. We don't do something there. That, I'm just telling you that. This is the Code Violation Podcast. <laughs> Welcome to episode four. It is four, right? Of Code Violation? Yes. Uh, our July 4th spectacular, which will probably have very little to do with that holiday since we don't want to be too disrespectful. To our Canadian friend Matt, how are you doing, Matt? I'm I'm doing fine. High energy as always. As always, um, we weren't sure that Phil was going to come back from Mexico, but it's nice to have you back with the beautiful new microphone. Did you get it in Tijuana? My microphone? Yeah. I was in Cancun. Okay. Way to play along. That's sorry. I think I think a joke went over my head there. Womp womp. <laughs> Did you get it in Tijuana? Yeah, whatever. Tijuana. Tijuana. The first rule of improv is you say yes and, and then you do your thing. How was your trip? My trip was very good. Um, my father was totally wrong about the weather. It was bright and sunny every day. By the end, we were actually looking forward to some rain to cool it down a little, but it never came. So just goes to show you never listen to your father about the weather. Um, but it was great to be back, and now I have this week off. Um, I do want to celebrate Independence Day, and um, I have no problems being disrespectful to our Canadian friend, especially since he has a holiday of his own to celebrate. Canada Day. Canada Day. Yeah, that already happened. Oh, so what do you do on Canada Day? Just be polite. I don't know. Is Canada Day July 1st for any reason other than to align with the American holiday season? It has absolutely nothing to do with the American holiday season. Mm, I'm not sure I believe that. It's to do with the founding of Confederation in in Charlottetown in 1867 on July 1st. Um, however, most of Canada didn't. I, I don't know. I mean, some of Canada had been existing for like 100 years before that. The part of Canada that I live in wasn't even ceded territory yet so it's whatever it's a yeah date. no that makes sense and and actually it's true the holiday was actually renamed in 1982 when the canada act was passed and that's the day it officially became known as canada day before it was called le jour what was it called before le jour de la confederation um but after that good old canada act it just became canada day so there's a little history lesson for I was under the impression it was Dominion Day. Nope. Canada Day is the National Day of Canada. <laughs> yes. What a Canadian introduction. Matt is still clearly worked up and whipped into a lather over it. He's probably still hungover. I, I was in I was in Rimby at my parents' place and we didn't even go into town. Um the only thing that it's traditional to do and there there is there are fireworks and I don't know, there's Usually, like in Calgary, there's some stuff. And there was probably stuff in Rimby, but the one thing that you're supposed to do is wear red so you look like a flag. 
Um, and I <laughs> didn't even do that. See, I knew you were holding out on us. Yeah, I knew that too. All right, well, <laughs> God, I can't even, I can't, I can't even segue from this. Sorry, guys. Uh, Canada's killing it again. The, the Canadian tennis players finally didn't uh, flop today. Milos had a good first round, and Shapovalov managed not to lose today. So it's, it's just a great week for Canada. Disgusting scenes. Yeah. The thing that I was most happy about today is right as the uh, it looked like we we're going to get through the first round unscathed in the uh, code violation front, but we did have our very first code violation of Wimbledon. I think it was the first one, and it came from a, a familiar character and uh, a friend of the show, actually. <laughs> Yes, big friend. <laughs> so, um, I told um, I told Matt and Phil to see if they could hunt down some audio. I was at work and I was going to try and get it ready for our recording time, but we couldn't find it. It was too soon. It had just happened. So we thought it might be a good idea to do like a dramatic reading of this. Are you guys up for that? Absolutely. Yes, and. <laughs> Very good. Um Oh, God, if there's any improv in this, I don't know what I'm going to do. This is carefully scripted. There was only two lines, really, that we um, were able to pull from the conversation. We didn't really get the context at the beginning of the altercation. So we just kind of fabricated a, a few lines here and there. But the gist of it is really, I think, is on point. All right, we should figure out how we're going to cast this thing. So... Who wants to be the coach that instigated sock? Phil, do you want to do the coach first? <laughs> sure. Okay. So you be the coach. Matt, you be the line judge. All right. And, oh, wait, do we have four parts? Coach, line yes. Judge, oh, yes. crap, we do. <laughs> oh, geez. Fuck it. We'll do it live. <laughs> if you're the coach, then you also have to read the part of the line judge and then you're out. Okay. So just do a different voice. Okay. So Phil's doing that first. Yeah, Phil's doing that first. Matt, you're going to be the chair, and I'm going to be Sock for this first take. Okay, okay. ready? Hey, hey, Sock. Everyone have your script? Yeah. Oh, sorry. I stepped on it. Go ahead. Scene. Hey, Sock. Everyone knows that was out. Even Stevie Wonder. Don't be such a bullshit person. You know this is bullshit, and the world is tired of your bullshit. Excuse me, Mr. Chair. Berrettini's coach was swearing at Sock, and he's not really happy about it. Can you believe this, asshole? I'm just trying to play a fair, clean game of tennis here, and I have to listen to this grease ball in my ear? Get the fuck Jack. out of here. Jack, do you want to listen to me or not? No. Could violation unsportsmanlike conduct warning, Mr. Sock. You can't say that to him. Oh, this is bullshit. I've never seen worse officiating in my life. He can call me bullshit three times, and then I say one thing and get a code violation? He shouldn't say it either, but you can't talk to him. You're beyond atrocious. Game, set, match. Verity. Okay, that wasn't bad. That was like a warm-up. I, I messed up. I, I figured the coach was um, American because I was thinking it was Sox coach. But I guess this was some other coach? It was Berrettini's coach. Oh, well, we'll pick that up in, in take two. We'll let, um, we'll let Chris have a, a crack at, at the uh, coach and the line judge. Phil, you be sock, All right. and I'll be the chair. Okay, and scene. Hey, sock, 
Everyone knows that was out, even Stevie Wonder. Don't be such a bullshit person. You know this is bullshit. The world is tired of your bullshit. Excuse me, Mr. Chair. Berrettini's coach was swearing at Sock, and he's not really happy about it. Can, can you believe this, asshole? I'm just trying to play a fair, clean game of tennis here, and I have to listen to this grease ball in my ear? Get the fuck out of here. Jack, Jack, do you want to listen to me or not? No! Code violation on sportsmanlike conduct. Warning, Mr. Sock. Don't say that to him. That, that's absolutely ridiculous. I, I've never seen worse officiating in my life. He can call me bullshit three times, and then I say one thing, and I get a code violation? Hey, hey, he shouldn't say it either, but you can't talk to him. No, you are beyond atrocious. Game, set, match, Berrettini. Okay. I, li- I really like the, uh, the the character part at the beginning is, I think, the best part of <laughs> yeah, this. Yeah, I agree. I'm going to get canceled. That was very well done, Matt. <laughs> now I don't really want to do it, because I was going to do Italian too, but now I don't really want to do it. That was too good. I'll have to find a different take on it. Hmm. Okay. Matt, you're gonna do, you're gonna do the chair. No, Matt. Oh yeah, gonna Chris is gonna do sock now. Okay, so we got this. <laughs> Fills the chair, right? Yep. Okay. Hey, sock. Everyone knows that that was out. Even if Stevie Wonder. Don't be a, such a bullshit person. You know this is a bullshit, and the world, the whole world, is tired of your bullshit. Uh, excuse me, Mr. Chair, Berrettini's coach was swearing at Sock, and he's not real happy about it. Can you believe this, asshole? I'm just trying to play a fair, clean game of tennis here, and I have to listen to this idiot in my ear? Get the fuck out Jack, of here. Jack, do you want to listen to me or not? No. Code violation on sportsmanlike conduct, warning Mr. Sock. Sock, you can't say that to him, Jack, you can't. This is absolute bullshit. I've never seen worse officiating in my life. He can call me bullshit three times, and then I say one thing and get a code violation. He shouldn't say it either, but still, that doesn't change the fact you can't talk to him that way. You are beyond atrocious. Game, set, match, Berrettini. (laughs) You're going to have so much splicing to do there. (laughs) There is a lot lot more ad-libbing going on in the third take. Yeah. I always go off script. As a writer, I would like people to just say my words, you know? Never happens. As an actor, I would like your writing to be a little bit more on point. <laughs> I had four minutes. Either put the time in or don't complain about it. Sock. Okay, so let's peel back the curtain here for our vast audience. We don't just do this off the top of our heads. We have a hit list of things that we want to cover on any given program. So we share a a Google spreadsheet, put our ideas in, we put our comments in, and then as we get closer to the time of recording, we decide what we're gonna talk about by color coding the sheet. And I say this like we've done it a bunch of times, but we actually just did it this one time because we had- You just did that. Yeah, we just did that. Uh, So I'm gonna hit the green stuff and then we'll go, uh, oh, you had one thing that was yellow that we wanted to make a green. Okay. Do we have that curious thing? Did we did we keep that? I didn't keep it. I had it as a yellow. <laughs> All right. No need to play the blame game here. We, um, well, <laughs> Curios's comments, I think, 
do tie in. Um, I, th- I think the word talent was initially on here because I myself get frustrated by uh, people who sort of differentiate the concept of being talented at tennis as opposed to being good at it. Um, since contrary to what we may have heard on the recently aired Strokes of Genius, you know, tennis is not art. Tennis is a sport. There's a single object, and that's to win. And so to be talented at tennis means to be good at winning. And so I get frustrated and annoyed by saying that player A is more talented than player B, um, even though they're not as good as winning, kind of as a way to diminish player B and their playing style. And I think this sort of um, ties into the recent Kyrgios remarks where he said that to me, you know, winning Wimbledon is, no, winning Wimby is the uh, pinnacle of men's tennis and grass court tennis is the origin of it. And on clay, um, you know, you don't have to have a serve or return. You just have to grind it out and it doesn't require as much talent. And it sparked a lot of polarizing reactions. I think a lot of grass court fans loved it and appreciated his honesty. I think a lot of Nadal and clay court fans hated it and thought it was disrespectful. And uh, clay is actually my least favorite surface, and but I still thought it was a totally clownish comment by Nick. What say you, Matt? I do remember now what, what Kyrgios was saying, and he, he was saying something about, yeah, needing to be more talented in order to win Wimbledon than to win on clay. And it seems to me that in tennis quite often, talent gets conflated with being good at the net and having good hands. And I don't really understand why that is. Like you would think that it takes just as much talent to be good at hitting ground strokes, to be good at getting returns in play, you know, all of these other kinds of things that you see on other surfaces. But for some reason, maybe it's because it's quicker. It involves faster reactions or something like that. But if someone can volley well, they're almost always seen as being talented. And I want to put that talented in in quotation marks there Um, because it... What does it mean? And so there's, I was trying to find this quotation from, from Gilles Simon, and I know that he said it, but I don't remember when exactly. But he basically just dissed Feliciano Lopez, who actually set a record today. for He passed Federer for most consecutive Grand Slams. But anyway, Simon said more or less that Lopez is not very talented. His ground strokes are bad. And all he can do is serve and come to the net. But because he makes volleys, ooh, wow. And he's like me, I'm bad at volleying. So people think I have no talent, but I can run and I have very good timing. So what's the difference? Personally, I don't think that being good at the net has anything to do with anything other than your reflexes. And a lot of the shots that get hyped up on the telecast are like stab volleys that that are miraculous. That's not, that's not really talent. It might be timing. It might be hand-eye coordination, whatever. I think talent, much like lots of words that are popular now among the tennis community, like point construction that I talked about last episode, I think is sort of a revolt against something happening. And I think talent started getting thrown around more as opposed to just being somewhat being great or being terrific at tennis, you know, someone who can win tennis matches, um, sort of responsive to, to, um, to baseline oriented players starting to dominate the game. And I think some people who might begrudgingly accept that they might be 
you know, more proficient at winning tennis matches, but they're not as talented. And that somehow is a good way of you know, downplaying their achievements. Because even if they beat me like a drum, well, it's not, art- not as artistic, it's not as nice. They wrap that up into the word talent, which is just a misuse of the word definitionally, because tennis is not a subjective game. You can have styles that appeal to you, but ultimately there's only one goal, and that's to win the match. Well, for most players, not curious at times in sock. Right. They're tweeners. Maximum tweener. Yeah, they're looking to uh, put together a hot shot reel for YouTube. But I think that's really well said. I couldn't agree more, really, with that sentiment. It's usually always as a reaction to a beating that someone took. So Oh, I I had one more rant about the curious comment. Um when he said, um, you know, clay court tennis is, is not really tennis to me. And, you know, a lot of people said, oh, well, you know, it's honesty. It's his opinion. And of course, that's true. I mean, any opinion can be said and can be honest, but it doesn't mean it's not knobbish. And I think there's this, this misperception that, you know, grass was the real surface for tennis for the first, you know, 500 years of the sport. And clay is this new novelty surface. I mean, Wimbledon started in 1877, and the French Open started in 1891, and that's around the time when tennis as we know it today was invented. So these are the two foundational surfaces of this sport. And so to say one of them isn't a sport, is it's like saying, well, hitting at a small ballpark isn't baseball, because only a large ballpark is baseball. When oh, Sorry to bring up baseball followers. But, you know, when something has existed since the beginning of the sport, to call one version of it not real is just totally knobbish, especially when you haven't accomplished anything in your life. End rant. That is quite the thesis for calling someone a knob. I think it's accurate. (laughs) I I center all my arguments of what I want to talk about with ending with the thesis of, therefore, the person's a knob, especially if it's curious. Also, someone has definitely been spending some time on Wikipedia in preparation for this uh, for this podcast. Not in preparation for during. Well, whatever. I've learned the dates of Canada Day, and <laughs> I actually knew that I actually knew the original year of Wimbledon. I had to look up the first year of the French Open, but I did know that they, you know, started around the same time. Well, I actually just thought he prepared in advance. I it didn't dawn on me that he actually might be using the internet while he's speaking. Multitasking. They say it can't be done. Sometimes when I'm not on Twitter, I even read. Okay, I can segue into this next one from talent to what makes a good match, if if anyone's... Yeah, the more segueing we can do organically, the, the less I have to do uh, grinding it out here on Clay in the studio. Not talent, by the way. <laughs> no, that's definitely it's grinding, mechanical grinding and splicing and engineering. You're like, you're like Djokovic <laughs> out there. I'm like Federer. No talent. Chris is like Gil Simone. No, I'm like, I'm like Murray. Come on. You're like Murray, but a bit more expressive, I'd say. Matt, what makes a good match? Okay. So this is where I was just in closing off the previous d- discussion. Um, I think, for example, even though I'm not a fan, um, that Maria Sharapova is, she's a very good tennis player. Um, she hits the ball very hard and she does it. I mean, she makes a lot of errors, but she does it quite consistently for someone to hit the ball that hard and to go for lines and all that th- sort of thing. That takes a lot of work, takes a lot of preparation, all those kinds of things. I mean, she did lose today, 
Uh, but anyway, she doesn't necessarily get called talented because she looks awkward while doing a lot of this because her well, her arms are really long, I think, mainly. But then she started hitting drop shots, and they were fairly good, as you would expect from someone who is good at tennis. But once she starts doing it, people are like, oh, wow, look at the hands on Pova. It's amazing. She can hit drop shots, right? And like, honestly probably going for lines and hitting them and like going for big serves down triple break point is more difficult than hitting a drop shot when you're on top of the point. But you know, somehow it's not as impressive. Um, in segueing then and moving on to what makes a good match, um, even though I dislike Sharapova, I would say that often her matches make for good matches and quite often they're bad. Like, there's often a lot of bad tennis. There's often a lot of struggle. There's starts and stops, but they're very dramatic. Um, and and Sharapova herself brings so much. She exudes tension, and so it seems like every match that she's in, it has all of this dramatic tension. So for me, that that is quite entertaining. So that's sort of the there's my opening volley or opening ground stroke, if you will. Cross court to Phil. A good match is decided almost entirely for me on quality of play. I guess there's a big difference for me between a dramatic match and a good one. Um, so I guess a good recent example was the last time that um, Federer played uh, Kyrgios. So we got to bring Kyrgios back into the conversation. And I thought it was a mediocre match, I guess. Um, but as Federer-Kyrgios matches tend to go, they went into tie breaks. I think this one was decided in straight sets, but um, I was like, wow, they're going into tie breaks again. It's always so close. But you know, I go back and I watch the Curios ground strokes and footwork and save for a couple points in the tie break, I thought his fundamentals were just really poor. And so to me, it was a high tension, like a good nail biter match, but I would never classify that as good. To me, a good match is one where both players play at a really high level and challenge each other, adapt to each other's games based on how their opponent is doing. You see problem solving, you see changes, you see rhythm. And I saw none of that in this match where you know, everyone on Twitter was like, oh, holy shit, this was amazing. So, I mean, it's a pretty simple answer to me, but it's um, quality. And I think a lot of less heralded matches in history have been better than some of the more hard ones. Like one of my favorite matches in history was the 2011 U.S. Open final, where I thought Djokovic and Nadal played hardcore tennis like, like I've never seen before. And it didn't have the drama of the 2012 Australian Open, but you know I thought the quality of play was better and therefore a better match. Personally, I think it comes down to the closeness for me. I don't really get whipped up, especially in these Grand Slam matches, until sets four and five. If it's pretty routine, even if the level is high, if the result doesn't ever really feel like it's in doubt, I'm not real intrigued by it, despite anything else that's happening, whether it's shot making or whatever. I mean, that's fun to watch, but the matches that come to mind in my head are ones that were decided in a fifth set or a dramatic third set. That's fair. And, and, and to be honest, I mean, I think part of when I say that it's defined by two players playing at a very high level. That just naturally lends itself to close matches. So I think generally good matches are close. It's just that not all very close matches are good. But I agree. You know, if it's a blowout, it can't really be a good match. Yeah, I, I think that's fair to say. 
I, I'm not just trying to to make myself sound like the uh, the woke guy here. <laughs> um, but but don't when, don't worry, you're not. When, okay, thanks. Um, but when I think about matches that I've thought were really enjoyable over the last two years, especially at slams, um, I'm, I'm generally thinking of the women's matches. Um, like, and, and you, a lot of the ones that Halep has been involved in, Halep and Curver at the Australian Open, Halep and uh, Lauren Davis at the Australian Open. Halep um, and Panko at the French Open. <laughs> if, if we want to revisit that. But yeah, uh, that's... I don't know. A lot of those matches have, have been more dramatic and more, you know, there's been, as I said, that tension for me, that, that there's been more of that than in many of the men's matches. I, um, I don't know exactly why that is, but is that the Latvian national anthem? Keep going on about Halep. <laughs> this is my cue to walk off stage. I, I, I do get the sense from the community that WTA tennis, um, at least right now, is generally considered the better and more um enthralling version of the two tours um for what it's worth so i i don't think that's necessarily the woke plug i think i think you're really in the majority there at least among hardcore fans for for me the only issue is i'm so enthralled by the break of serve and that being a rarity that it can be a little bit difficult for me to be as enthusiastic about a match where the server isn't at a tremendous advantage. Um, now, I've told some people that, and they say that's just a gap in the evolution of me appreciating tennis, and so I continue to watch WTA matches, and I might change out of that mindset. But to me, like getting that crucial break is, and that break being so rare is, is part of the drama for me, um, which sometimes you don't see as often on the other tour. But I agree, the points themselves I've been seeing this tournament have been more exciting. I love that Aga, what was her name? Ruse? Aga against Ruse was spectacular. Opposing styles at a high level. Yeah, what is it? Rusa? Rusa? That sounds right. That was um, what might fall into the dramatic close match. The level wasn't exceedingly high, but it was close. And did she save match points a, a few times in that? Aga saved match points, yeah. Ruzo was just bludgeoning the ball and dictating points and playing a very aggressive game, and Aga was playing her defensive game and kind of weathering the storm very well. So I, I thought the quality was really quite high, and it was a dramatic thriller. So that was, I think, my favorite match that I've seen during the tournament so far. I was hoping Ruzo would come through, but you know, it's hard to root against Aga. Unless you're Ostapenko. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next on the hit list, Jack Sock's chances to win Wimbledon. That used to be green. It's still green, but let's go red. Yeah, his chances are over. <laughs> I'm not saying the, ne <laughs> the next one. <laughs> Since you can't see this, Matt literally just made the Jack Sock's chances turn red on our spreadsheet here. It's too bad that we don't have that video segment. But anyway... So what color is this next one turning? Gray. We, we, we already discussed Canada at length. And congratulations to Milos, if that hasn't made the cut yet. He's through to round two with a resounding victory. Yes. Hey, no one other than Djokovic, who played not really a tennis player today, has lost fewer games than, than Milos so far. 
and out of one round. So there you go. Don't even have to apologize for that, Milos, but I will anyway. It's a Canadian thing to do. Hey, this might be a good time to talk about the code violation suicide pool. And I'm looking at the selections for the first round and all of the green folks going through. And the re- there's a lot of red for a first round of a major. It's a disaster. Matt, explain to the listeners what this pool is. So maybe by the time we get to the U.S. Open, we can have a full spreadsheet. It, we're trying to make it fairly simple. Um, a normal suicide pool, as I understand it, is just, well, you would do both draws. You do the men's draw and the women's draw, and you just pick one player per round who you think is going to win that round. And suicide means that if your player loses, you're dead. The, the real key is, though, is you can only pick a player once. So you can't just be like, well, I think Federer is going to win Wimbledon, so I will pick him in the first round. No, you you basically, in a traditional pool, you'd have to save him for the final. Um, but because that's so chaotic, having, you know, you could basically lose half your pool in, in, in two rounds, we thought, let's make it a little, uh, let's give people a little more incentive to stick around a little longer. So we did top and bottom halves. So you have you get to make two picks per draw. Um, per each round. So if you pick, say, like I did, Magdalena Rabarakova, who was a semi-finalist at Wimbledon last year for your first round pick, and she goes out, you're not totally screwed because you have the other half of the draw. It still seems to be very difficult because we're we're looking at like a... She's for the women's bottom half. It, it's looking like we're at like one third of the people are already crapped out. I'm doing great. Yeah, Phil's doing well. You are doing great, Phil. Matt and I both had one loss, bad loss in the first round. I think I may have made the worst first round selection in the history of any suicide pool by picking someone that has never in his career won a match on grass. I didn't have that information at my disposal when I was making my picks. Because the internet was not available to you, right? Hey, I, I just have a question about the suicide pool that might help people who are listening who are on it. Is there a website that lays out in a very user-friendly fashion the draw and also the results as they come to fruition? The French Open website did it very well, but I find with the Wimbledon website doesn't do it well at all, and I'm having trouble finding something where I can sort it out. I actually use the Wimbledon website myself i found it to be okay because i don't know i i don't like myself well, i started doing this for fun with my son uh, for the australian open and now i've kept doing it i i like just hand make the draws with a ruler and everything which is i don't know why i do it because it's not really any fun but it is it does make this much easier once the draw gets manageable by like round three it should be pretty easy anyway it's just a lot of names to start with for now might be over by round three. No, I'll, I'll be fine. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm talking about you. I know you're fine. Phil already wins. Yeah. You don't need to keep picking if everyone else is dead. I still will, though, just to prove it. <laughs> I, I'm going to pick the two finalists and the winner. Fantastic for Great. you. And, and you win, well, nothing. I win a six-pack of beer from Corey's friend, I think. Yeah, he'll send it. Good. Will he send it to Canada? He's already got his picks in for round two. 
I'm doing mine right now. Oh yeah, I haven't even looked. Oh yeah, he is. He's on top of this. Look at that. He's the first one in for round two. I'm picking Stan and Kay on the men's side. Now I gotta find the women. <laughs> Good luck, Kirk. Take them down. Um, and you can just bring the beer to me, and I'll send it to Phil. Okay, so what do we have here? Strokes of Genius was something that um, Matt Chris decided not to partake in. Well, to be fair, I couldn't watch it. And I'm not paying money for it. <laughs> what was it, $12? Yes, 12 Canadian dollars, but hey. I'm not going to get into a long-winded review of it because I think most people probably saw it. And if you watched it, probably found it entertaining at least. I don't think there's a lot of rewatch appeal in that particular documentary. Phil, what did you want to add about Strokes of Genius? I thought they did a good job of framing the stories they wanted to tell around the match. Um, I thought they did a good job of making the match scenes very dramatic. They had all, a lot of different camera angles and over-the-top um, you know, operatic, theatric music. Um, it was basically, I think, exactly what you'd expect. What I would recommend to people, if they haven't seen it, and it's on HBO Go right now, is the documentary about the McEnroe-Borg match, which I think was a better match based on the parameters that we discussed earlier. And I think for people who haven't seen that and may be into the spirit from watching Strokes of Genius, I thought that was really terrific to kind of watch something from 20 years earlier that was sort of the original greatest match ever played at Wimbledon. What's the name of that? Fire and Ice. Cool. I'll have to watch that. Yeah, that was pretty good. Hmm. You doing anything for the fourth? I'm going to the beach. Um, so my friends have a house on Long Island and it's a bunch of people out there. Half the appeal is that it's 15 degrees cooler. It's a horrible heat wave here in the city. So it'll be good to get out to the cool beach and pretty much just relax, drink beer and, uh, let people grill for me all day. Fantastic. Matt, last thing. Do you watch Game of Thrones? Nope. I don't think I've seen a single episode. Phil, you? I watched season one and enjoyed it, but it was very demanding on my attention span. And so it's been a hard show for me to try to get back into. Man, I went to dinner with some friends this last week and had a full court press put on me about watching Game of Thrones unlike anything I've ever experienced in terms of peer pressure. They're the worst, yeah. It's like they can't just accept that they love it. They need you to love it too, and they need you to know why. I'm open to watching just about anything. Like I tried one episode of um, Westworld, and kind of what you said, I had the, the same feeling like probably not for me. That's why I've always kind of stayed away from Game of Thrones. And there's plenty of stuff on HBO and on regular television that I love. But boy, oh boy, when I said that I have never watched Game of Thrones, you wouldn't believe the scenes that happened at that dinner table. I, I can imagine the scenes. Exhausting. That, that's what I get at work. And and honestly, it, it puts me off to even watching the show. It makes, it's, it's, it's like the modern day wire. It's like the more people shove it down my throat, the more I just want to say, nah, fuck that show. I'm, I'm not interested. You really should watch The Wire. No, nah, The Wire is stupid and boring. <laughs> the, the overarching theme for me is that there's never been a television show in history that has been important for someone to see and so the minute they start talking that way i just i just lose interest like none of my favorite shows ever do i think anyone would 
have a significantly improved life if they have seen. And so I'm quite sure that I'm not missing anything that will truly enrich my life. It's not Moby Dick. It's Game of Thrones. It's not Moby Dick. It's Game of Thrones. I think we got that in the clear. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of Moby Dick, but not fully. This Game of Thrones thing is kind of, it's actually quite similar to sitting around with people who play tennis and saying something not even bad, but mentioning that you're not a fan of Roger Federer. Uh, disgusting. You're, you're all of a sudden, they, they all look at you like, what is wrong with you? I, I was told actually that I had a dark soul, which I do, so fair. Um, but that, that's the kind of reaction that, that not liking Federer among, well, especially Canadian tennis fans for whatever reason. Now we've got Shapovalov, so maybe, maybe that will be better. But yeah, it's like Federer or nothing. Yeah, G- Game of Thrones is a lot like Federer. So is soccer, actually, in that it has massive global appeal. It's great, but overrated, and people are offended by the idea of you not liking it. They can't just enjoy it themselves. They are offended if you think it's not as good a sport as American football or baseball. Another plug for baseball, Hayden. All right, well, I think we're going to wrap this up. There are some green and yellow. This is your last chance. Yellow and green warning for anything on the sheet that you'd like to cover. Phil want to know why he's a soulmate with Friedrich Nietzsche? I don't care if it's on the episode, but I have been wondering that. If it's anything more than just being like laced with irony. No, it's not. <laughs> so here I am in my spare time reading French philosopher Jacques Derrida. Nerd. Talking about, Frid- about Nietzsche. I won't try to say his first name. Um, and autobiography and and whatnot. And and then he goes on like a footnote, basically, on Nietzsche's use of the word disgust and Nietzsche being disgusted with things. Um, And for Nietzsche, this was a very important concept to be literally like to uh, to find something wretched, like to the point of vomiting, to be disgusted by it. Because that's, he, he thought that was a very moral thing. To, to show that much contempt for something, to, to be able to understand that something is bad, to, to reject it. So when Phil is always, as we know, even before Phil really came on the show, Phil is disgusted with a lot of things. So apparently he has, uh, he has this in common with Nietzsche. So maybe, maybe this means he's a, a, a great thinker who will possibly go blind and crazy. Or it might just mean that my ideologies are going to be associated with fascism and Nazism one day. That article was disgusting, honestly. Well, that was where Derrida was getting. But I do agree that it's a very important human reaction to be viscerally disgusted and revolted by things that are bad in this world. Um, That mentality and humans evolving that way is why we continue to make the world better and solve bad problems and continue to advance ideas if we become complacent and don't become disgusted with ideas that are revolting and absolutely terrible and knobbish then we're not going to make any progress so he's right on that for me (laughs) yes yes that was very well said actually on both your parts i I look forward to the tweet in this episode we discuss maria sharapova and Friedrich nietzsche should be good should really entice more listeners That's all I'm going to put, actually. Yeah. (laughs) 
Well, I really hope some of you listen after this one. And if you're disgusted by some of the content, let us know. Otherwise, we can't improve. It's very important. Let Matt know. Matt Chris, second serve hack. Such a pro. (laughs) All right, friends. Oh shit.